0: transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: What I was into was how do you change people's emotions using your body? How do you perform in front of somebody? How do you show up in the world and cause them to think and feel something different from what they've felt and and, and thought before? So I started working in the mainstream of theatre and film and TV and got very well known in that area. Anyway, so at some point somebody came along to me and said, do you think you could do this, this stuff that you do with people?" in kind of business and organizations and politics, do you think you could help people behave in such a way that they'd be able to alter the audience's views of them? Mm-hmm. And essentially uh, what I would say is, is uh, manipulate the idea that, that is had about them. I said, well, you know, as long as they're a human being, as long as they've got kind of roughly two arms, two legs and a head in roughly the same place as every other human being, they'll be able to do what we're doing here, which is to, on purpose, change the feelings of an audience, regardless of the content. That was the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. None of the, what I do, it, it doesn't really matter what anybody's saying. It's about what they're doing that actually influences and persuades what people thought they said.
4: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
4: Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt.
3: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. So I was introduced to you by uh, a way of a, a former guest and good friend of ours, uh, Michael Bunge Stany, if I pronounced that even correctly or not, uh, who was here years ago and somehow started digging into my work. And when I asked him for uh, any ideas, he actually mentioned your name. So on that note, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your work, uh, your journey, your story, and how that has brought you to what you're up to in the world today?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, let me tell you a, a bit about what my work is at the moment, and then we'll kind of we'll kind of head backwards in time or, or flip around in time. So, so what I do right now is I'm an expert in body language and human behaviour, which means that the majority of my time I, I'm I'm doing that kind of expert thing of going out and talking to crowds, could be a you know a few hundred people, a few thousand in some cases, or just one on one to help people use their behavior on purpose in order to stand out from the crowd and win trust when they speak. And essentially, um, well, I mean, create a a personality around themselves that attracts people, essentially. But by uh, changing the environment around them, uh, the environment being themselves. Uh, So I change people's body language in order to change the feeling that people have about them. Does that make some kind of oh, sense? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah,
1: cool. Uh, now, how did I get here? So, uh, way, way back, I remember reading... Well, so I wasn't a great reader, actually. Or, or, or let me just get this right. I wasn't a great speller. And so, you know, maybe didn't read as much as I should because um, I didn't spell that well, but I loved pictures. So, so I'm dyslexic. So so reading and writing uh, was always a little bit of a uh, an issue and a, and a problem. In fact, generally just pe- people at school thought I was just uh, lazy and stupid. Um, and neither of those was particularly true. So I used to love pictures and drawing pictures and seeing pictures. And there was a magazine called The Observer, which... Um, came out every Sunday in England, which is where I'm from originally. And they had a colour supplement. And so it was a, a Sunday newspaper with a colour supplement. And they had some great photography in there. And I remember seeing a picture of a theatre company. And they did plays with masks. They had big, like, they like, wore like cartoon heads, essentially. And I just looked at this picture and I thought, that looks great that looks like really good fun. These people have got kind of cartoon heads on and they're putting on some kind of play. I thought, that looks really good. And I thought, I'd quite like to do that. And then didn't think much of it, apart from I kept hold of the picture because it was such a good picture. Then a few years later, I found myself... ...studying performance art at the university where that theatre company had studied... ...and training with the guy who trained them, who at the time... ...a guy called John Wright, who was and still is one of Europe's uh, top experts in mask theatre. So I ended up studying with him and really dedicating my uh, time... ...to know everything I could around mask theatre and how to tell stories with pictures... So I started off telling stories with pictures and that's how I got into the behavior and body language area was looking at people's behavior and and trying to mimic it to see how that would alter the narrative for the audience. Does that that make some sense as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, So I, I spent... The first part of my career as a performer and a director and a trainer of actors, but in this very very specific area of what we call visual theatre or um, uh, physical theatre. And uh, I ended up working, by the way, for the one of my first, actually my first uh, acting job was working for the company that I had theatre company that I'd seen that picture of in the Observer magazine. So, uh, but anyway, when I then got to work for them, it was rather like joining your favourite band and feeling that you've made it and now they're making albums that aren't so good. (laughs) (laughs) it 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 was a great time, but they weren't making the shows that I'd seen in that picture and also I'd then... Been to see as a student, which had just you know kind of uh, put a fire in me to be able to work with them, and and by the time I got to work with them, it was it was it wasn't so good. Anyway, the uh, what I then happened was I kind of went into the mainstream of theatre, uh, visual theatre and physical theatre got actually quite popular. It, it was it, when I first started studying it; it was it was some kind of well, everybody just thought it was mime. They they kind of thought, oh, well, you must do mime then. And I think they envisaged you always in some kind of black leotard or white leotard with with a white face and doing trapped in a bubble. If you've ever seen that Marcel Marceau kind of what we call illusionary mime. And And uh, though that's kind of fun, that's not really what I was into. What I was into was how do you change people's emotions using your body? How do you perform in front of somebody? How do you show up in the world and cause them to think and feel something different from what they've felt and and, and thought before? So I started working in the mainstream of theatre and film and TV and got very well known in that area. Anyway, so at some point somebody came along to me and said, do you think you could do this, this stuff that you do with people?" F- in kind of business and organizations and politics, do you think you could help people behave in such a way that they'd be able to alter the audience's views of them? Mm-hmm. And essentially uh, what I would say is, is uh, manipulate the idea that, that is had about them. I said, well, you know, as long as they're a human being, as long as they've got kind of roughly two arms, two legs, and a head in roughly the same place as every other human being, they'll be able to do what we're doing here, which is to, on purpose, change the feelings of an audience, regardless of the content. And that was the interesting thing. Hmm. None of the, what I do, it, it doesn't really matter what anybody's saying. It's about what they're doing that actually influence and persuades what people thought they said. So, you know, my my theory and science on it would be is that we're making up what what people said most of the time. Mm -hmm. We're just coming up with what we thought they said given the context and their behaviour and our behaviour around that. So if we can change the behaviour, if we can change the environment, the context, we don't have to change the words. They'll just change the words. The audience will just change the words to fit their expectations of what somebody would say in that environment and, and context. So from there I got into working with business people and politicians and on from there talking to big audiences about all of this stuff and using many of the skills that I'd that I'd uh, originally learned on on the stage. Hmm. So that's kind of I don't know whether that tells a tells a, a, a sensible arc but but that's where I started, and here I am now.
2: Okay. Very, very cool. So there's there's a ton of stuff here, and I figured there would be just based on the, on the, the nature of this. You know, I, I want to dig back uh, a little deeper into the beginning of your story. One thing that's sure. interesting to me is that you mentioned that you were dyslexic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I look at this, you know, so many people who are entrepreneurs have been known to be, you know, dyslexic or have ADHD or, you know, sort of things. I'm really interested in in dealing with that experience, especially at a young age, feeling, you know, you said that people saw you as lazy and unmotivated and you were neither. Uh, You know, I mean, I think to some degree I've experienced that. And I'm really interested in in navigating and overcoming that internal narrative of, oh, I'm seen as lazy and motivated, but the reality is I'm just dyslexic. And, And, you know, how you've turned that around.
1: Yeah so I mean my experience of it back as a as a kid was I always wanted to do well at stuff. I always I wasn't sitting around going I don't think any of this really matters. Everything really mattered to me in terms of being good at stuff. I mean, you know, I have a I'm really motivated by being good and trying to be the best at everything that I that I do. To the extent that nowadays I won't really tackle anything unless I think I can be the best in the world at it. Mm-hmm. So so I'm I'm a little bit trapped by this, you know, wanting to be fantastic at, at what I what I do. And it was the same back then. I wanted to be good at stuff. But when it came to the world of of school, um, I think what, what would happen is – I can see that partly the distress that, that teachers would get into is that they would hear me talk and they'd get a sense of what they thought my intelligence level was and my engagement. And then they'd see the work that I do and there was such a disparity between it. They, the, you know, the, the theory they came up with is you must be doing this on purpose – You know, there can't possibly be this disparity between how you are live and how you are on paper. You know, you can't be as good talking about maths and then we see that the answer that you gave is so wrong. You can't be so good at talking about English or creating stories or telling stories and then when we see it written down, it literally has none of the words make any sense. And certainly not in that order. So there was such a disparity that I think they got quite upset with me and, and, and maybe angry or, or just um, confused mm-hmm. by it, I think. And, and what tended to come out is, uh, you know, you, you're being stupid or you're just being lazy or you're not trying. And I think one of the most disappointing things was always having somebody say, you're not trying. Because if there was anything that I was doing, I was really trying. In fact, you know when you when you uh, my experience is having dyslexia is is you know s- something weird is going on and you try even harder and then the more stressed you get about how you're trying the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's been interesting going going through that and I guess it, it creating a sense of um, you know I I think I'm going to show you. Mm-hmm. I'll show you. I'll show you how good I can I can get at something. In wow. fact, I've heard similar stories from. I've been, I've uh, been doing some work with a, a, a dyslexia dys, dyslexia organisation, uh, which includes uh, Jamie Oliver working on it and Richard Branson working on it. So we've been doing some stuff together, mm-hmm. and uh, both Jamie and Richard are, are dyslexic as as well. And there's some similar stories there of of just not fitting in right. at at school. And then going out into the world and finding something you can do, and then trying your, you know, really working hard to be the best at it. Mm-hmm. And having a very different attitude than a lot of people out there who've maybe found some of those early years a, a little more, a, a little easier to handle, I mm-hmm. think. So, um, and I'm an, uh, you know, I'd class myself as an entrepreneur as well. And so I understand how it can be difficult with that mindset to work for people <laughs> and and a little easier to work, you know, for yourself and with other people um, because there's a certain way you kind of do stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and, and and other people, you know, their focus is in different areas that you just don't have a have a focus on. Yeah. Like I like I, I don't know whether it's the same for you but I just want to get stuff done so quickly. <laughs> and I think I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like that, you know, they want to get stuff done quickly. And 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 the moment anybody s- starts to talk about kind of long-term strategy, mm-hmm. I'm just ah oh, I just don't see that right. at all. And number one academically, yeah. uh it doesn't doesn't add up because mm-hmm. because that's like having you know, a long-term strategy about bringing up a child. It's like, you know, who's, who knows what's going to? You no, know, any any business is a relatively complex situation. It's not complicated; it's complex. So yeah. there are so many things that could happen. Having having a strategy that you think would work is is kind of kind of crazy, as far as I can see. You just you just have a goal, and you and you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I guess to that extent, I'll never be running a large organization.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I may, I may be in the same boat. Uh, yeah. you know, so I, I, or I may be the founder of one, but never in charge right, exactly. of running it. Exactly. Let me ask you something. Uh, the one thing that really is interesting to me that you said there is because of, of being dyslexic, it gave you a different attitude than somebody who had had it easier, uh, in those earlier years might have. And part of me wonders if, you know that attitude is actually the edge that allows you to do what you do and if we didn't have the the crucible or the challenge uh, of something this difficult how do we cultivate that kind of an attitude or that edge in our own lives does that make
0: sense
1: yeah for sure i mean i, I would translate into um, into kind of dramatic terms in the you know the real the real drama is in the problem mm-hmm. it's it's uh, you know the motivation is in the problem that the that and so yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of drive for me comes from that early problem. Uh, having said that, you, you, you're you're carrying around uh, a problem that isn't really a problem anymore,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or or that actually I've uh, learned to handle better. You know, I just don't write anything down, or if I am writing stuff down. I tell people, I just go. So I'm dyslexic. So when I write this stuff down, it may look like the word to you, or it may not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I kind of take the take the ground of I'm just am writing it m- my way. <laughs> uh, if it doesn't fit with your way, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to the bank and uh, and uh, you know I, I need to put in a, a a check, you know, manually with a with a with a teller. They'll hand me the slip and go. Can you know fill fill that out? And I'll say, well, so I'm dyslexic. So if I write it down, all the numbers will come out in a way that that won't add up right. So yeah. you, you'll need to do it for me if we want the numbers to be right. <laughs> so, so so it's kind of like saying, look, I can do it my way, but but it it won't fit in. Correct. So but but I'm happy. You know, I'm happy for it to go any way. <laughs> well, usually any teller wants their work to be accurate <laughs> accurate yeah. so it's great you do it you want the numbers to be accurate you do it um so so i think you you know you work out a way to to manage it mm-hmm. but but programmed into your limbic brain is this experience of people uh suggesting that you're not you're not trying uh you're not Uh, yeah you're you're lazy you're not trying and I think that does hang around with you for for longer Yeah. yeah yeah for sure
2: And let's talk about this whole period of, you know, working as, uh, you know, a performer, director, uh, and a trainer in visual theater. How has that whole experience influenced and shaped uh, the way you see the world, the way you tell stories, uh, and the way that you do the work that you do today?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, I guess one of the massive bonuses is, is that, uh, you know, in the world of of performance – I, you know, I was really pretty good. So that doesn't mean I, I worked a hell of a lot, but I was pretty good. <laughs> so, so, you know, you start to understand that how good you are at anything doesn't necessarily mean you can be commercially successful. And, uh, you know, it's not the best cereal that sells the most. It's the best sold cereal that sells the most. Mm-hmm. So you know, at the same time as having that striving for, for being really good at something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get the, the results in terms of, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the, uh, the size of audience that you might like, sure. but, none, but nonetheless, here's what, here's what happens is being, being good at that means that with what I'm doing now and getting across these ideas around nonverbal communication and behavior is when I'm on stage keynote speaking for an audience they're they're seeing they're seeing a, a kind of a performance on stage that the majority of other speakers just aren't going to be able to come up with simply because they don't have the technique, mm-hmm. they don't have the experience and the and the and the technique. Uh, look, I would say in life there are there are no real naturals at anything. It's all learned behaviour. And, and you get good at something because you learn the behavior. Everything's learnable. Everything's teachable. And I just happen to learn and teach and how to perform. Mm-hmm. So when I walk on in front of an audience, they're seeing somebody very, very good at performing who, has, who is fascinated by the world of nonverbal communication and behavior. Mm. So you're seeing somebody who's, who manages to get across in a great performance, that content. So that's been a massive, um, all of that's been a massive bonus for me in terms of being good at, at speaking to a large audience about the stuff that I speak about. Now also, having that, that time in the, in the world of performance uh, means, and, in, and the, in that specific area of nonverbal performance, means I, I really know what I'm talking about in terms of the nonverbal Mm-hmm. world and 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 a view that other people who are experts in this area don't have most experts i would suggest in in the world of body language and nonverbal tend tend to be and have tended to be experts around the idea of how can you you know watch other people and get a sense of their behavior and kind of maybe get the upper hand on them because you can read their minds it's kind of that kind of feel to it. That's not what I'm into at all. It's kind of interesting, but it's not not what I'm into. Simply because it's actually not very helpful mm-hmm. for people. The idea that you might be able to read somebody's mind—well, when it's not true, you can't read people's minds. I've really looked into this, and, and, <laughs> and, then, and despite and then what not, the psychics tell you, yeah, 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 yeah. Despite what, yeah, if if you ever go and visit a, a psychic or you know somebody who says I read people's minds, and they. Uh, They do their mind-reading thing. Just need to tell you, they're not reading your mind. It 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 is like I can categorically tell you, it's not happening. Yeah, they could be guessing and guessing right, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how long they'll be able to do that. I mean, some people are just better guessers than others, (laughs) and you know, if you guess enough and have enough people coming for guesses, you have a much higher hit rate of guessing guessing right. So if you do it on a daily basis with a lot of people you get a lot of hits um you get a lot of misses as well it's how you handle the misses and handle the the right guesses so anyway so nobody's uh nobody's uh, mind reading um out there um I and mean, i kind of veered veered off on a skew there so i've forgotten where i was initially no no worries unless you going with that but um yes i guess it's about you know what, what advantage has it given oh yeah no I know what I was talking about so uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah I'm, what I'm interested in is how you can use your body language mm-hmm. in order to influence and persuade people not how can you read other people's body language in order to influence and persuade them or get the upper hand on them uh, one because you're not going to be able to read their minds sure. you're going to be able to you're going to get a theory based on their behavior and your chances of, of that theory being correct are quite low. However, your chances of, of governing your own behavior are really high. And so, you know, that I know I can do. If I decide to behave in a certain way, I know I'm going to be able to behave in that way until I decide to stop. And if we know what result that behavior is most likely to have with another human being, that's pretty powerful. Hmm. So so that's that's where my interest lies.
2: Well, I think that makes a perfect setup to what I want to spend the majority of our time talking about, sure. um, which is this whole idea of um, using nonverbal communication uh, you know, to persuade people and to change behavior, not just theirs, but our own as well. And I feel like there's probably an entire goldmine here uh, that we could spend a good half hour, 45 minutes talking about. It. So let's get into this. I mean, sure. the question that I guarantee you that is coming up in somebody's mind is, okay, Mark, that all sounds awesome. How do I apply it to my life?
1: Yeah, yeah sure. Well, so uh, first of all, you got to say, so there are some communications in life that are important and some that aren't very important. Mm-hmm. And there are some communications in life that are going fine anyway. And there are some that aren't going so well. What I'm interested in is the communications that are really important that aren't going so well. Because everything else is going to work. It's, is, it doesn't matter or it's going to work itself out. So uh, what we what we really need to talk about is is how do you use nonverbal communication and your, and your behavior on purpose in order to influence and persuade in those communications that are tricky and important? Mm-hmm. So here's what I'd suggest is, is when things are tricky and important, we don't have a very positive frame of mind. We get confused, and the people around us get confused and we get upset, and we get nervous, and we get anxious, and that shows in our behavior. It's designed to show in our behavior because our behavior is designed to get us the best result for us now. Yeah? Yeah? So when I show anxiety in a conversation, it's designed to show you a behavior that might either stop the conversation now or cause you to behave in a certain way that would be for my benefit now. And that's the important thing. It's about now. It's not long-term. Non-verbal communication isn't lo- natural, uh, Nonverbal communication is not about the our natural nonverbal communication is not about long term It's about get a result for me now. Not a result for us, not a result for you. Get a result for me now. And that's where it all goes wrong. So if you can start to govern your behavior to get a result for us now and in the future... You'd have much more successful interactions, especially if they're important and tricky ones. Knowing and uh, so knowing that when things get tricky, we usually either uh, we either do fight or we do flight. Well, in fact, it's a lot bigger than that. We do we do freeze, then flight. If flight doesn't work, fight, and if fight doesn't work, faint. So you go through this process of. Of you're in a tricky conversation and you've kind of gone rigid and you're in that freeze situation because your brain just doesn't know what's going on and you've and you've you're now that that speaker or that communicator that's stiff as a post and uh, and and looks kind of rigid and unnatural mm-hmm. though it's a completely natural reaction and then you become that communicator that's on the back foot and and looks like they want to not be in the room. And then you might become that communicator that looks aggressive and up for a fight. And then you might start to look like that communicator that the blood is draining from their face and they're, and they're about to die <laughs> uh, in, in front of everybody. So we don't want to be that communicator. We want to come across as calm and assertive. So I guess what we've got to know is, is, what, is the, what is the behavior of somebody who's calm and assertive and here's the thing that we don't often look at is when we are most calm and assertive when we're on top of a communication when life is going well for us have you ever noticed the body language that you use have you ever noticed your behavior because what tends to happen is is we think well the way we'd alter our behavior is to get a different mindset Mm -hmm. so people will often tell you you know don't be scared um uh, it's all right. Don't you know you'll be fine in doing the speech. Uh, the presentation will be great. Just, just, just tell yourself it's going to be great. But you know you've got this little voice in your head that's going. Well, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and, and, the, and the more you tell yourself it's going to be great, the more the little voice in your head goes. You don't understand how big a disaster this is going to be. They're going to kill you out there. They're going to. Mm. So, uh, what I've found is there's no point in talking yourself into a better frame of mind you need to act yourself into a better frame of mind you need to do the behaviors of somebody who's confident calm and assertive and what what i picked up on which goes right back to my early training in in visual theater and physical theater with john john wright is that we used to talk about gesture planes, horizontal planes of gesture. Now, until I came along in this kind of body language scene, nobody had come across this stuff. But this, is, this stuff is in the acting world, well, in a very thin strand of the acting world, is, is literally thousands of years old and has been known throughout the, the, the history of visual theatre, of telling stories with pictures, which obviously goes back as, as, as old as we humans are pretty much. What ultimately affects your tone of voice, your feeling, and the way other people feel about you is the horizontal height that you have your hands. So if I actually just demonstrate this with you, obviously you won't be able to see me, Hmm. but um, uh, I'm going to actually just stand up and put my hands at different horizontal positions. What I'm going to do right now is allow my hands to just hang down by my side and carry on talking to you and all I want you to notice is the um, the rhythm of my voice and the tonality of my voice that comes with my hands hanging down by my uh, side and what and give me some feedback on what your theory is about my state of mind right now and the kind of person that I am If your hands are by your side, yeah, I mean that you're getting from my my tone of voice right now and the the, the cadence of it and the rhythm. Um,
2: somebody who's kind of you know plagued by self doubt and not assertive or calm, right? Or somebody who's scared.
1: Okay, and so that's coming across in my in my tone of voice. So sure. what you need to understand is that that's not who I am, mm-hmm. but you've now have that theory about me by hearing my tone of voice, and my tone of voice was changed. Simply by hanging my hands down by my side, nothing emotional has changed about me. just so I mean you're talking about self doubt just show so you know uh, last year, I was voted the number one body language professional in the world so I think there's no reason for self doubt there <laughs> sure. and and clearly from your laughter you're not convinced by by that rendition of the, of the fact uh-huh. it's a, it's a, it's a checkable fact that you can go and check that it's true. Okay. But my guess is, is your, you don't buy that fact because of my tone of voice. Would that be right?
2: That's pretty fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from the yeah. way you're, that, that's actually an interesting assessment. Yeah. I hadn't, I, I didn't you know, really process that until you said it, but yeah, without a doubt.
1: Right. So now what I'm going to do is uh, what I've done is now moved my hands to navel height. Yeah. So they're at my belly height rather than hanging down by my sides. They're at belly height. You've probably noticed already my tone of voice has changed immediately. Yeah. Yeah. The rhythm has changed immediately. Okay. Let me just give you that checkable fact again. Last year, I was voted the number one body language expert in the world. So you'll get a sense that really there's there's no reason for any self-doubt around Mm -hmm. my abilities in what I do. Now, how do you feel about that fact?
2: Oh, I, I can tell the difference immediately. If I want, if I right. like, you know, for anybody uh, listening, go back and play it. It's a really, it might seem subtle, but I could tell. Uh, you know, I've listened to thousands of people talk and tell, or hundreds at this point, tell, talk and tell their stories. And so I could immediately tell a difference.
1: Right, so my guess is, is that with the tonality that comes with my hands at navel height, at belly height, it's actually the, the the gesture plane that I call the truth plane.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You are, you're actually designed to pick up on that tonality. And if you could see it, you'd get an even bigger impact from this, by the way, because we pay more attention to what we see than what we hear, Mm. yeah? So, uh, but even with just changing the tone of voice that naturally comes from this, my guess is, is you feel what I said was more credible and I'm more calm, assertive, and confident about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now what I'm going to do is move my hands. I've now moved my hands up to chest level, kind of sternum level. Okay. Right. And I want you to notice now what's happened to the difference in my voice and the cadence within it and the rhythm within it now. And, and now I'm just going to give you that checkable fact again, is that last year I was voted the number one body language uh, professional in the world. So just to let you know, I'm, I'm very confident about about my abilities and what I do. And so what I want you to to have a uh, give me some feedback on now is now what's your judgment about me as somebody speaking to you and also what's your judgment about that that fact now you've now it was said with that rhythm and cadence that naturally comes with my hands at this chest level height well
2: i mean my reaction isn't the, the one that it was before which is one of laughter it's okay yeah
1: obviously right Right. So you, you, you're getting a, a bigger sense of energy. What we know about this gesture plane of, of hands at, at, uh, at chest height is that the heart rate goes up and the breathing rate goes up, not only of the person who is delivering, but also of the person listening. So if, if you were actually monitor your heart rate at the moment, you, you'd, you'd notice that it's gone higher because you're following the rhythm and the cadence, uh, the breathing pattern that comes with that. You'll be find that you'll be breathing in a different way. And just to demonstrate that, yeah, and how I quickly I can change your breathing and your feeling, I'm just going to drop my hands down by my side mm. and carry on talking to you.
0: Yeah.
1: And notice how quickly your breathing pattern changes and your vocal tone. Notice how when you went, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you're, yeah, you've just done it again. Your vocal tone is downward inflected. Whereas if you go back and play, you're uh, talking to me in between, especially when I'm just going to go back up to that passion plane, up to the chest level, yeah, you'll notice that you have upward inflections when you're talking to me. So you quickly mirror my behavior. So that was just a quick kind of journey through these gesture planes. You've got the the truth plane at belly height. You've got the passion plane at chest height. And hands down by the side, you've got what I call the grotesque plane. (laughs) Yeah, And the reason I call it grotesque is because it's from a nice... Uh, medieval latin uh word uh, grotesque means from the caves from the grottoes. Uh-huh. so it's a bit kind of darker covert more sleepy uh, down there there's a whole bunch of other gesture planes that go higher than the than the chest one of concealing and revealing and thought and ecstatic which is right above your head which actually i'll just do for you now uh, my, my hands now as I'm talking to you are right above my head and you'll notice how quickly it changes my tone of voice and how rapidly I'm, g- I'm g- getting my information across to you. You'll notice how your breathing patterns have changed, your ability to to key into the different words and the content that I'm using. Uh, and <clears throat> you'll notice how much more calm and assertive you'll feel about me and my content as my hands come again to the truth plane. So you can see how rapidly I can change my behavior, my performance, and your experience uh, of me. And I hope that kind of comes across over the the sound for you. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, you know, this this raises a whole series of questions for me, some of which I'm going to ask for very personal reasons. Uh, Okay, so I want to take this out of the context of the conversation that you and I are having and start looking at it in the context of everyday situations. Um, You know, you, you talked about communication. that's really important not going well uh let's use an example that every human being can relate to talking with a member of the opposite sex right sure Sure. some of us are fantastic at it some of us are horrible at it and how does this affect that i mean even for say a person who is married and wants to have better communication with a spouse or somebody with a significant other or even for the single person who wants to come across more attractive like how do we take this and apply it in that context
1: yeah so so let's not start let's move away from thinking about talking to the opposite sex and now talk about behaving with the the opposite sex and think about how would we behave in such a way that might engage others. Hmm. So uh, people are are more engaged uh, with people who uh, look more friendly, look more open. Yeah. So how can you be more open, whether you're talking to somebody who you're trying to attract or just trying to talk to your, your you know, life partner and you know each other well, but it's a conversation whereby you need to show your openness. Mm-hmm. It's no good saying, uh, I'm, I'm really open to hearing what you have to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because I just put my hands down by my side, uh-huh. slumped and said that, and you heard the tonality of voice, and immediately you knew I'm not open and I'm despondent about this. Okay. Yeah? Now, if I sit upright, I have my hands open at belly height, and I say I'm really open to hearing what you have to say. My guess is is that you felt that was more honest and true. Yeah. Yeah. Now, hey, the reality is I might be despondent, but showing my despondence at this point, is that going to be helpful to us? And so maybe I have to choose to behave in a way that is optimistic and open when actually I feel unoptimistic and closed. You know, sometimes we're open hearted and sometimes we're closed hearted. Yeah? yeah. And, and, but you can behave in such a way that looks more open-hearted. And actually, if you carry on behaving like that, actually opens you up. So I would say if you're in a conversation uh, where you need to attract people to you and, and get them to open up and talk to you, you need to have more attractive, open behaviors. So a smile would be an example of that as well. So often people don't investigate how to smile. Mm -hmm. They either think, well, you're either smiling or you're not smiling and you can't, you can't fake a smile. Well, of course you can absolutely fake a smile. (laughs) Yeah. And and people will often go, oh yeah, but, but you know, um, there was this person or there's this person on TV and I, and they'll usually, it'll usually be a a politician and they usually say, I can tell that they're they're faking that smile, and I'll say, "Well, they're just not very good at faking it." It's like it's like having actors that are, there are good actors and there are really bad actors, and the good ones are really good, and the bad ones are really bad, and then you've got everything in between, and the bad ones will never give a good performance, and the good ones you'll forget that they're an actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll be they'll be a a personality, somebody who you you see in magazines. And at some point in the film, you'll just lose sight of the fact that it's somebody pretending to do something and you'll be absorbed by it. So, you know, how do you get good at, at, at smiling on purpose? Well, the, the, the true smile, the Duchenne smile, has both upturn of the lips and narrowed eyes so you get little wrinkles at the side. And you, you can just practice doing that, but you have to practice doing it. Nobody becomes good at anything really by accident or if they do it's a bit worrying because accident isn't that repeatable Correct. so you want to get good at stuff by purposely practicing doing it based on first of all observing I, I think this is the number one important thing um, and again goes back to my days of studying and studying visual theatre and, and, and uh, visual theatre is we'd always go and study the thing first copy it, mimic it, which is where you get the idea of mime, comes from Latin, mimosis, to copy. You'd you'd study something, you'd copy it, and then you'd be able to reproduce it on demand. So study smiles, copy smiles, and learn how to reproduce a smile on demand. If you do that, you'll notice the smile makes you happy. Hmm. We're designed in such a way that if the body is doing it, the brain is not as clever as we'd think, and it kind of goes, well, if the body's doing that, then we must be in that state of mind. You know, we wouldn't be smiling unless there was a real reason to smile. So there must be a real reason to smile, and then the brain will just make it up. It'll make up the world being nice and good. But you have to sustain it physically, and that you have to do on purpose. And that is essentially uh, unnatural. It's an act. It's the act of doing the natural stuff that you do when you're in a certain state. I hope that makes some kind of sense.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let let me ask you this. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned is when we get into uncomfortable situations, what happens is you go into freeze, fight, flight, and then faint. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. you know so the thing that has always challenged me with situations like that is the space between the space between stimulus and response oh yeah and the fact that i'm like okay how do i create the space between stimulus and response so i can control the response
1: yeah that's a really uh, astute uh, observation yeah because you'll probably have noticed you've when you get into a a situation of fear or unconfidence mm-hmm. it's over by the time that you've actually turned around and gone, oh, I was really unconfident. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, it's, it's just over too quick. So first of all, you've got to start monitoring uh, how you actually feel, what your body does when you're unconfident or you're fearful. Hmm. Yeah? So that you can pick up on some of the subtle things it starts to do when you're going into that state, and you can interrupt that state and or countermeasure that state with other behaviors. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Now, even better, you could start to monitor the kinds of environments that cause you to be unconfident. Now, if you know you're going into that environment, you start to countermeasure the behaviors that you don't want to see immediately before you've even walked into that environment. There are some days where I know I'm going into an environment that's going to trigger me with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I start the behaviors of somebody who isn't anxious right from the moment I get up in the morning.
2: So for me, that's an Indian wedding. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. So, so the, my guess is, is you, you pretty much know when you're going to one Oh. They, don't t- they don't take you by surprise.
2: Yeah, and of course, you know, I have all sorts of smart-ass answers planned for everybody who asks me why I'm not married. Uh, right. That's why I think it's a pretty interesting example of exactly what you're talking ah, about. Ah, so
1: that's great. So, so that tells me that, number one, you know, you know quite a way in advance of when this event is, occurred, mm-hmm. is going to occur. My guess is you get an invitation, yeah. and the invitation has a date on it. And, and you also know the script that's going to get played in that... Uh, environment and you know the kind of behavior you're going to play back they're going to say why aren't you married and you're going to have a smart answer for them Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so so this might not be a behavior that you want so now we want what we want to do is change that environment so that you perform differently okay so we so we investigate what could we change about so there are things like like don't go Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is is what if you if you don't like The way that you're behaving then never show up to the event but of course it's like man it's a social event and actually i should go and there's a whole bunch of benefits i just don't like the downside like an open bar Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I don't want to, you know, the the upside of the open bar is, is, is way more important than, than, than missing (laughs) out on it. I I totally, I totally understand. I totally understand. So now we've got to know, so what is the kind of behavior? What's the kind of body language you're going to start, you'd naturally start doing as you walk into that environment, knowing how the script's going to play out. So give me, give me an idea of in your mind of kind of how you're positioned and how you walk in and how you sit and how you stand currently at these, uh, at these Indian okay. weddings.
2: So, you know, I, I'm probably dressed well, but I walk in already in this headspace of, oh, God, here we go again. Okay. Um, you know, thinking I'm going to have to have a lot of very uncomfortable conversations, and my inclination is to give smart-ass remarks to shut people up so I don't have to talk to them.
1: Right. So tell me about, you told me about the mindset of, mm. oh, God, here we go again. Yeah. What does that look like? I need to know what is your body, and you need to know what does your body do mm-hmm. when you're in the mindset It's tense. Of, It's tense, ah. it's
2: incredibly tense. Like every, you know, like my heart is racing. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, like I'm tight and tense. That's really what it is more than anything right. else.
1: Right, right. If you were to describe it, the,
2: the body feeling.
1: Yeah, yeah, and when you said um, I'm tight and tense, I'm just going to mirror how you said tight and tense, mm-hmm. and uh what i've done to get that tight and tense feeling is i've shrugged my shoulders up towards my neck
2: hmm.
1: okay so my guess is is your body probably does much the same thing yeah when you're at these things my guess is is you're probably doing the shrug gesture which is designed to protect the carotid artery as a windpipe from attack that's the the reason for the shrug gesture is to protect the neck area yeah mm-hmm. so so one thing i might tell you is we're, we're gonna just learn how to totally relax our shoulders. Okay. Yeah. And the one thing you're gonna do from the from the the moment you walk in there is be really relaxed in your shoulders. Really relax your shoulders. In fact, you're gonna relax the whole of your body. If I was to think of tight and tense, is like um, there's a bomb in the room. Sure. Yeah. And it's about to explode. Well, yeah? there usually is. <laughs> right. <laughs> it could well be. <laughs> it could well be.
2: It's called an old Indian mom. <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly. Not mine, but other ones. She's going to explode on you, and and so your body is in that tense situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, how would your body be if you're on a walk down the beach? Well, walking along,
2: insane amounts of time at the beach, incredibly relaxing.
1: Right. So here's what I'd like you to do. Next Indian wedding you go to, yeah, yeah, it's. Obviously, we're not going to trick the mind in going, oh, yeah, an Indian wedding is like a beach. It's not. (laughs) It's an Indian wedding, okay? So there's no psychological trickery here. All I want you to do is next time you're on the beach is really look at how you walk, Uh yeah, and how the tension in your body. Sure. Yeah? I'd like you to walk into that Indian wedding with that same tension in your body. Okay. Yeah? Like… So you have, it's not like it's a walk on the beach because it isn't. Right. Okay. But you're walking into an Indian wedding with the same tension in your body as when you walk on the beach. Okay. Yeah? And when that that Indian mum comes up to you and gives you that question of, so why aren't you married? Yeah? I say, Do you have a single daughter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I what I want you to do is Reply to her in any way you like, but mm-hmm. with the tension of Okay, I'm, I'm walking along the beach. Interesting. And see what comes out of your mouth. All right. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Now, you've got to trust me about this because often people go, well, Mark, it can't be that easy. It can't be that – but I, I'm going to guarantee you that if you walk into that Indian wedding – yeah, with the same body that you walk on the beach and you talk to that Indian mum, with the same body that you walk along the beach, you're going to have a whole different Indian wedding. Yeah, that Indian wedding is going to change. Very cool. You'll have never been to an Indian wedding like this. Yeah, and and there's something about you that will show up to that Indian wedding that's never shown up before. Hmm. And that could be something very interesting. Could well happen there but certainly it's going to be one of the most relaxed Indian weddings you've been to
2: I love this this is so brilliant and I love that, that we've used that as the context in the practical example of this <laughs> uh, you know I, I think that makes a really really fitting and hilarious way to wrap up our conversation <laughs> Mark I have one last question for you which Please. is uh, how I ask uh, how I finish every interview with the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable
1: oh gosh Ah, wow, that's a really great great question. What is it that makes somebody unmistakable? Um it's it's that they have made a choice, they have made that choice bigger. Yeah, they've 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 amplified it and then they've kept it tidy. They haven't added anything to it. They've just gone, "Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm about." In fact, Let's just make that even bigger. I'm, I'm, I'm about an even bigger version of what I thought I was about. And I'm not going to add anything to this to augment it. It's, it's that level of clarity mm. about them that, that makes them unmistakable. There's no mess, it's just totally clear. I think that's my answer. Amazing. Uh,
2: Mark, I have to say this has been one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your journey and, and some of your really truly, you know, thought-provoking <laughs> insights with our listeners.
1: Uh, great, thank you, thank you. It's been a lovely interview, and thanks for taking the time to to, to do a very um, different and uh, standout interview. Thank you, and for everybody listening, we will wrap with that.